So everyone, good morning. We're beginning a new series today. It's a series that we're calling Holy Resilience. And I'll begin with a story. When I was 11 years old, I got my first pet, two hamsters named Mo and Lou. I have no idea why I decided to name them that, but that's, that was their name. They're two teddy bear hamsters. And uh, Lou was the first one to get very sick. I prayed fervently that God would heal him, the kind of fervent prayer that an idealistic, God-fearing 11-year-old girl would pray. And I felt sure that it was some kind of test, that if I prayed hard enough and I listened to everything my parents told me to do and I practiced my piano and I prayed with all my heart, I thought that God would heal my hamster. Well, you probably know the end of the story. My hamster died, and I thought it was my fault. Somehow that I hadn't prayed enough, that I hadn't showed God enough faith. And that is one way that lots of us face struggles in our lives that we see a struggle or a challenge or a painful thing as somehow a spiritual problem with a spiritual solution. Maybe it's a spiritual attack that we have to pray against. Maybe it's a test to our faith or a lesson we're supposed to learn or even a punishment from God, but whatever explanation you give, it's a, it's a spiritual one. God or, or Satan are, are behind it, and, and the solution is a spiritual one, to pray more, to have, to have faith. And so we try and pray away our depression, and, and we blame ourselves when God doesn't answer, or we pray fervently for the healing of a pet, and it's our fault when that that pet dies, or we look for the lesson. God has everything to do with this hard thing. That's one way of approaching a hardship. The other way, everything is spiritual or everything is not spiritual. The problem is an entirely unspiritual one with an unspiritual solution. So a bad thing that happened has nothing to do with God, and it's up to us to navigate it or to fix it. We practice self-care, we see a doctor or a therapist, we take medication, we attend support groups, we fill our toolbox with all the things that we need to recover or to persevere. And if we are people of faith, it doesn't necessarily mean that we've not believed God, but somehow God has nothing to do with the solution. So when a hard thing happens, it's, an, it's either a spiritual problem with a spiritual solution, or on the other hand, it's an unspiritual problem with an unspiritual solution. Those are two ways of dealing with something that is a challenge in our lives. Or another way is, is to somehow be in denial about it. It's not that bad, it, it wasn't that significant, it didn't hurt that much. Uh, and, and some of the ways we, we live in denial is even to, to abuse substances, to to deaden that feeling. There is another way, and this series is seeking to explore that other way. 
This other way is a way of participating with God when things get hard. It's a way that acknowledges both our role in recovery and God's role, and it's a place of participating with God and with God's spirit. We're calling this series Holy Resilience, and that word resilience might be familiar to lots of you. It's a word that's pretty popular these days, and it's a very important idea, popularized by um, positive psychology in particular. And resilience basically means bouncing back after a hard thing, bouncing back after a difficult experience instead of being completely devastated. Resilience is having the inner resources to recover and or to endure something that's hard instead of burning out. And we're using the word in a particular way here by putting the adjective holy in front of it. Because where resilience, in in a purely psychological term, where resilience entails finding the resources inside of ourselves to recover, I want to suggest that holy resilience, which is kind of a term that I made up, but holy resilience is to have the same posture as resilience and the same, maybe even the same practices that resilience would invite us into, but the source of it goes beyond ourselves to God. The source of our resilience as Christians is God and the wholeness that God can bring. God is the ultimate source of our strength and our hope and so we express dependence on God. So the trajectory of holy resilience is a little bit different, even if the practices might be the same. And this idea of, of, of resilience, of holy resilience, it's not a magic bullet. It's not think things and do things and everything will be better. No, it's not the promise of that. But it is the promise that, that God can transform us that in the midst of us walking this out with God, in partnership with God, that we can become the people that God wants us to be. The image that I think of to convey that idea of holy resilience is um, on my t-shirt today. I have connections in the department of t-shirts. And I have actually lots of them, or several of them, because my husband, the t-shirt printer, wanted to make sure I had the right shirt. So I'll hold this one up to show you the image. It's an image that I encountered um, when I went on a spiritual retreat uh, to one of my favorite places, which is a, a monastery in Squamish. And one time that I went there, I, I was in need of some resilience. I was in need of the presence of God, and I walked into uh, the vestibule where they have uh, art kind of available, and I saw this picture, and it spoke to me. I don't know what you see when you see this picture, but I see somebody who is strong and yet not strong at the same time. Someone who who is both weak and strong, Sometimes resilience, uh, the word, the term for resilience is bouncing back. And in a way, I see this person is bouncing back. And yet at the same time, it also looks to me like his arms are raised in worship. 
Or maybe even it's a person who looks older, but he's, he's childlike and reaching up for the arms of his Abba father. So when I think of resilience, I think of, I think of this picture. And I have five t-shirts here. If any of you want one, come on up and take it and make a donation to uh, CAP's Compassionate Assistance so someone who needs some financial resilience can find it. But you honestly are welcome to these. Resilience, holy resilience. That's what we're going to be talking about for the next four weeks. And here's how we're going to do it. We're going to spend a little bit of time in a biblical story Because the story of the people of God from beginning to end is a story of God being present to his people in the midst of hardship. The story of God's people from beginning to end is a story of holy resilience. It's not always pretty, it's not always tidy, but God is our hope and helps us to be resilient in his way. So we're going to share a story from scripture every week, and then I'm going to talk to someone in our community who has a particular take on resilience as a practitioner. We have lots of really skilled, competent practitioners in our midst, and I wanted their take on resilience as well. So we're going to have a conversation about the scripture story and a bit of a conversation about uh, about their lives too. All right, you ready? You excited? Y'all want a t-shirt? We can print more if you want one. All right, Hagar. This is the person I want for us to consider today. I'm not going to be reading those scriptures, but if you want to know her story, you can turn to those two places, Genesis chapter 16 and Genesis chapter 21. I'm going to be condensing the story for you today, but it's all there in those two places. Here's the key verse in my mind to her story. Genesis chapter 16, verse 13. And these are the words of Hagar. You are the God who sees me. Hagar, this Egyptian servant who finds herself serving in the household of Abram and Sarai soon to be given the new names Abraham and Sarah. Abraham, our father in faith. Hagar, her name interestingly literally means stranger. Hagar serves in Abraham's household and she is the servant specifically of Sarai. Now those of you know a bit about the story between Abraham and Sarai, They are trying to have a baby. They are trying desperately to have a son. It's not working very well for them. And Sarai, in her desperation, in her desire to have that child, in her desperate need to have some control over the situation, she thinks, how can I do what I need? How can I accomplish what I need to accomplish? I know I'll get my husband to sleep with my woman servant. Good idea. And the child that my maidservant bears, that will be my child because she's my servant. That's how I'm going to get that child that I want. Well, we all know it's a bad idea. And this practice 
might seem really bizarre to you, it certainly seems bizarre to me, but it is actually an established practice of that time. Slave women were considered property of the household. Human incubators, wombs with legs if necessary. And so Abraham, being the good, dutiful husband, goes, okay, and goes and has sex with his wife's maidservant, and she becomes pregnant. Now Hagar, she's a gutsy woman. She sees herself as more than just a womb to be bought. After becoming pregnant with Abram's child, she sees herself as Sarai's equal in the household. And this creates an untenable situation for Sarai. It's not going as well for Sarai as she thought. This plan that actually is coming to fruition the way that she thought isn't what she actually wanted. Interestingly, Sarai blames her husband for what's happened. And she complains to him. Abraham pretty much says, yes, dear. And out goes Hagar. Hagar is kicked out of the household into the desert. A woman without means, a woman without family, a woman who is pregnant with a child, cast out into the desert. Sarai mistreats Hagar so badly that the desert is a preferred place for Hagar to be. This vulnerable woman, pregnant, alone, no food or shelter, she has this encounter with God. We don't even have any indication that she's a believer in Abraham and Sarai's God. She is an Egyptian, after all. And yet somehow she has this transcendent experience with a messenger of the Lord, perhaps even God himself. The messenger calls her by name, which is interesting because she's not referred to by name by Abraham or Sarai, but God, God knows her name. God uses her name. And I imagine God's tender, gentle voice asking this beautiful question. Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? Such a beautiful question. God knows the answer, I trust, and yet the question allows her to assume a a posture of reflection and wondering. Well, what ensues in result of the question is a conversation between Hagar and God. And what comes is a promise from God about the future of the child in Hagar's womb. And after the promise is issued, God then commands Hagar to return, to return to her mistress and to submit to her. And so then Sarai returns to Abraham's household. Now hear me clearly, there is a lot that troubles me about this story. This picture of a woman wandering in the desert, preferring the danger of the wilderness to the home that she's left, that reminds me of the plight of many of the refugees that are roaming our earth today, who would leave their home for an unknown, willing to face an unknown danger. There's vulnerability there. 
a servant treated badly by her employer with little rights or recourse, like many of the unpaid or migrant workers in our world today. Such vulnerability at the mercy of someone with more power than them. I don't like it that she's that vulnerable. I don't like it that she's told to return and to submit to the abuse again. I don't like it that she's considered a human incubator instead of being treated as someone who bears the image of God, which she does. God tells her to to return to that bad situation. God makes promises about who her child will be, but he doesn't make any promises about the fact that it's going to be easier for Hagar. This is not particularly satisfying for me. But the interesting thing is that it seems to be enough for Hagar. Something about that brief encounter that I've outlined gives Hagar enough to go on. It gives her what she needs. This woman whom God addresses by name now gives God a name. You are the God who sees me. I have now seen the God who sees me. I have now seen the God who sees me. At this point in scripture, she's actually the first person to give God a name. Don't you love it? This woman, this powerless woman, names God. The God who sees me. In the midst of her vulnerable circumstances, this woman experiences God inexplicably. She feels seen by God. And through that experience, she gets a glimpse of who God is. Something about that encounter changes Hagar. It increases her capacity. One way of understanding resilience, an increased capacity, a reframing of her life situation. It reframes her life in in such a way that allows her to return to that abusive situation. The story is picked up again in chapter 21 when Hagar's son, Ishmael, is born, and God makes good on his promise. The promise that he makes in Genesis 16, he makes good on in Genesis 21. And once again, he shows that he is the God who sees Hagar, and he is the God who sees her son. So the image I want to leave you with is of Hagar seeing God and being seen by God. That's the image of holy resilience I want you to see today. That somehow this glimpse of God as the God who sees her enables Hagar to have hope and to have increased capacity and to endure. And so at this point, I'm going to invite uh, today's conversation partner to come up here. Uh, Some of you may not have yet had the pleasure of meeting Rami, but Rami, I'd like to invite you to come and join me here in this chair. And let's welcome Rami. Can we please, as he joins me. Uh, Oh, and then here's your microphone. So welcome, Dr. Nader. Have a seat, please. Um, And would you please tell us um, a little bit about who you are, including your family, and how long you've been here at CAP, and and what you do for your work? Yeah, my my name's Rami Nader. Uh, I am married to a wonderful woman, Andrea. We've been married, uh, it'll be 14 years in April. 
Uh, we have two wonderful daughters. Uh, Aaliyah just turned 12 this past Tuesday, and Layla will be turning 10 this coming Tuesday. <laughs> so they are exactly two, two years and one week apart. Fantastic. Um, I, I went to school on the North Shore. I graduated from West Van Secondary. Uh, then I went to UBC, and four degrees and 13 years later, I uh, graduated as a, well, graduated with a PhD and uh, became a psychologist in 2006, uh, practicing at the North Shore Stress and Anxiety Clinic, uh, where I've been ever since. Uh, I'm currently now one of the directors and owners of the clinic since 20, 2012, and uh, we are think the largest psychology clinic in Canada. We have 33 psychologists there. Um, my practice is primarily anxiety, uh, treatment of anxiety and depression, um, PTSD, and I do a fair bit of assessment work for courts and uh, civil litigation, that sort of thing. And how long have you been attending CAP? Uh, we started attending CAP in, I think it was August of this past year. Right, that's fantastic. Uh, so before we get into the serious stuff, it's an icebreaker question just so that we can feel like we get to know you a little bit. Uh, Remy, what was the favorite room in your house growing up and why? Uh, <laughs> we, we moved a lot, of, uh, we moved, moved around a lot when I was younger because my dad would build houses and so we'd just move from house to house. But there was one house um, in Cypress Park where we had a, a big unfinished basement. And uh, for me and my brother, uh, two boys having a, a big, unfinished, empty space downstairs with like concrete walls that we could do pretty much anything in. So we'd play hockey, we would build forts, we would race radio-controlled cars. Uh, it's just kind of like a, um, an empty canvas. So it was, uh, it was a lot of fun, that room down there. Oh, that sounds awesome. All right, Remy. So um, imagine that Hagar, this person we've just talking about, imagine that she is a client of yours. Um, I don't know, maybe she's seeing you for PTSD, or maybe she's seeing you for anxiety, um, or maybe she's coming to you with a story because you've been seeing her for a while and there's this, you know, Victoria story that she's telling you. Um, but if Hagar is a client of yours, came into your office with her story of trauma and transcendent experience, um, what would you affirm in her story? What further questions would you ask? And what would be your treatment plan for her, if any? Uh, I'm glad with the, the last question where you added the if any, because uh, <laughs> I, I probably wouldn't, um, I wouldn't have a treatment plan for her. Uh, one of my pet peeves as a psychologist is we, we tend to live in a society that overpathologizes emotion, that um, you, know, you should never feel sad, you should never feel depressed. Uh, if you have any emotional response to something bad that's happening, that's somehow pathological and you need to seek treatment or take some medication for it. And, and in her case, she's actually managing really, really well at the end of um, Genesis 21. She's, she's doing really well. So uh, I wouldn't recommend any treatment for her because she's doing just fine. Um, in terms of what I would affirm in her story, um, there's the part where she's in the desert and God tells her to go back, go back to her abuser. And it's, it's very counterintuitive that she does, because it, w it just makes sense. Well, why would you go back into a situation like that? Um, but what I would focus on is, is 
one of the things that really drives anxiety in a lot of people and worry and anxiety in a lot of people is uncertainty and fear of uncertainty. And she was going back into an unknown. And so from a psychologist's perspective, we would call that tolerating uncertainty. She was tolerating a lot of uncertainty going back into that situation. Um, she was doing a behavioral exposure and she was trusting. What's that behavioral, behavioral exposure? Behavioral exposure, uh, you're, you're putting yourself in a situation, you don't know what's going to happen, um, you're scared of what might happen, uh, but you do it anyway, and you see what happens. And uh, for the most part, uh, usually when people do behavioral exposures, what they find is that what they're afraid is going to happen typically doesn't happen. So um, what I find for a lot of people with anxiety, depression, sort of two ways of thinking tends to happen. People tend to either overestimate the likelihood that bad things are going to happen, so they anticipate that negative things are going to happen a lot and a lot more frequently than they actually do happen. And related to this concept of resilience, uh, people tend to underestimate their ability to cope when bad things happen. So if you think about a person who has that view of the world, uh, the world becomes a very scary place. Right? Bad things are going to happen a lot, and when they do happen, I'm not going to be able to manage, I'm not going to be able to cope. Um, but for Hagar, if we look at her story, bad things had happened to her. She had been abused, um, and she was likely going to experience that as well, going back into that situation. Um, but because of her experience with God, um, she tolerated uncertainty going back, believing that he would take care of her and that things were going to be okay. Um, and she returned. She did a, she did a behavioral exposure um, and ultimately it turned out fine. So those would be the parts that I'd really highlight for her is um, her willingness to be courageous, to take a risk and to trust that the promise that she was given in that desert or the, the encounter that she had with God in that desert was going to be okay for her and, and things were going to be okay for her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Is there anything more, uh, Remy, that you'd want to say about resilience, like add or correct anything that I said in my introduction? Because you're the psychologist and I'm the pastor, no, so. No, it's, it's really good. I mean, ultimately resilience is is that ability to bounce back when things go wrong, when things don't, occur, don't happen the way we, we want it to happen. And uh, at the, the heart of resilience is kind of a belief and trust that things are going to be okay and that things aren't always going to turn out badly. So I talk about uncertainty. I spend a lot of time talking with my clients about uncertainty and tolerating uncertainty. And it's not so much the uncertainty that's scary for people, it's what they feel the uncertainty represents. So if you think about uncertainty, if you think about like you're on one side of an intolerance of uncertainty lens, that intolerance of uncertainty lens is going to bend your perception of what's going to occur to be a negative outcome. So people aren't afraid of positive things happening in their life, they're afraid of the negative. And so when faced with uncertainty, they don't consider the positive or the neutral things that can occur what they focus on is the negative. And so it's not so much the uncertainty that's scary for people, it's what that uncertainty represents. And so resilience, part of resilience is being able to see it isn't just the negative, that positive things can happen and neutral things can happen. It's neither good nor bad, it just 
just is. Um, so through, typically through experience with uncertainty, people are able to see that, you know what, bad things don't happen all the time. Or even when bad things do happen, I'm able to cope with it, or it's not, it's not the catastrophe I think it's going to be. Thank you. Uh, last question. Uh, one of the things I talked about is is the increased capacity that Hagar had as a result of being able to, of, of seeing God, of encountering God. Has there been a time in your life when you experienced increased capacity because of a spiritual experience? Yeah, a few. Um, I was thinking about it this morning. I was trying to remember what year it was, but it was actually, it was June of 1997. And I got a letter from the admissions at the Faculty of Medicine at UBC. And I opened up the letter, and it was a rejection letter. Um, I had been applying for medical school. So I applied for medical school the year before, and I didn't get in. But, you know, that's pretty common. First year applications, they typically don't get in. But took a year of unclassified studies, got really great marks. My MCAT marks were great, did lots of volunteer work. Pretty confident year two application was going to be fine. So when I got that rejection letter, I thought, uh-oh. Because back at the time, back in the day, um, UBC Medicine had this policy of three strikes and you're out. So you have three applications. If you don't get in on those three applications, you're not allowed to apply anymore. So I had one application left. And I thought, well, like, now I was really worried. I was, I was quite concerned about what was going to happen. And uh, I called up a friend. And I was telling her about what had happened and not getting in. And she, in passing, I don't know why she said this, she's like, well, I'm going on a, a missions trip to Mexico. Why don't you come on the missions trip? I said, no, I'm not going to do that. Why would I do that? And she went on to go talk more about it. And then she said, well, it's with an organization called Mexican Medical Ministries. And once I heard the word medical, it's like this light bulb just went off in my head. I was like, that's the final piece of my application, right? I can go on this medical mission to Mexico. It'll look great on my application, and uh, it'll, it'll help me get in. And my friend said, no, no, no you, should, you should pray about it. I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. done, prayed about it. I'm, I'm good to do it. Let's, get, let's do it. <laughs> so, um, so like four or five weeks later, I'm on a plane, and we're on the tarmac, and I'm sitting around and I'm like with this group of people, I don't know anybody really. And I'm thinking to myself, what am I doing here? Um, and I remember sitting, like as we were waiting to taxi, and, and I prayed. And for all of my life, like I always believed in God, but God was always up there, and I was always down here. And you know, he could stay up there, and you know, I, I'll take care of my stuff down here. Um, the years leading up to that, like, life just kind of felt, felt empty, right? Like, I was, I was going through school, getting good grades. I had a clear plan for what I was going to do. Um, but it just, there was something missing. And so I remember praying, and I said, okay, look, God, I'll give you this week. I'll do anything you want me to do. So I'll listen to whatever I, I hear you say, and I'll do anything you want me to do. And if I do that, then I want you to do something in my life. And um, so looking back on it now, as a psychologist, I can say, okay, well, I was, was going to be tolerating uncertainty. I was going to be doing a lot of behavioral experiments. And I was going to sort of challenge a lot of 
the assumptions and beliefs I had about myself, other people, and the world. And so something changed on that trip. And I remember it was, um, it was a Friday. It still gets me. Um, it was a Friday morning in a dirty little church in, uh, in San Quentin, Mexico. And I remember just being on the floor, praying and crying, uh, and knowing in that moment that everything was gonna be okay. And just like with the story of uh, Hagar, in the, um, in the, in the, uh, when God, when she says, God sees me. And it was like in that moment, I knew that God saw me. And I knew that everything was going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Okay. Um, and that's kind of the, the key to it all, is that, and that's kind of the secret sauce that we as Christians have, that, that the rest of the world doesn't is that we know we have a God that sees us. And that a God who not only sees us, being on this side of the cross, we also know that it's not just a God that sees us, but a God that loves us. And that no matter what happens, ultimately everything's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And it may not be okay tomorrow. It may not be okay six months from now. It may not be okay five years from now. But ultimately, things are going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And so it's a lot easier to tolerate uncertainty. It's a lot easier to have resilience when you know that you have a God that sees you. And so when I'm working with my clients, it's not my job to tell them that they have a God that sees them, but I know that they have a God that sees them. Yeah. So as I'm working with them, and helping them tolerate uncertainty and challenge beliefs about themselves and do exposures and be courageous, uh, I know that ultimately things will be okay for them mm-hmm. because God sees them too. Mm-hmm. Couldn't have said it better myself. It's beautiful. Thank you, Remy. Yeah.